Well, we're going to just uh, pick up on our study of the book of Hebrews. So if you're uh, with us new today, you can uh, turn to Hebrews near the end of your Bibles. We have been studying um, through the book of Hebrews verse by verse and chapter by chapter and sometimes word by word, uh, but we're getting there. In fact, we have been in it many months now. We finally arrived to the great well-known chapter, chapter 11, the heroes of the faith chapter or the great, great faith chapter. And we began it a couple of weeks ago with just an introduction to the subject of faith. And that's what the author does for us in those first three verses. He, he gives us a description of the nature of faith. And after doing that, he launched into a long example of the men and the women from the Old Testament who lived lives of faith. Not only talking about faith, but he says, let me show you that the faith is lived out. Let me show you in the lives of the people in the Bible. And the first example, we looked at him last week, was Abel. And Abel was a man never recorded in Scripture as saying a single word. (laughs) Yet, we were told at the end of verse 4, and you want to look at this because it's very interesting. The very last phrase of verse 4 of chapter 11 in Hebrews says, And through it, he being dead still speaks. Well, as I said, he's never recorded as speaking anything, but we're told that he still speaks, implying that he spoke something before and he still speaks today. But Abel's faith was an authentic faith. He demonstrated through his offering that he brought to God, um, and he brought uh, uh, an offering from the firstborn of his flock and from the fat of his flock. But when he offered that, he demonstrated that he had a recognition of his need for atonement that his sins needed to be covered in order for him to approach God. And as a result, we were told he obtained witness that he was righteous. And the Bible elsewhere does refer to Abel as a righteous man. It's not just there in that account. But we were told that his brother Cain, however, brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, um, but his offering did not demonstrate authentic faith. And his offering was rejected by God. And the reason it was rejected is because it was an example of false religion, making our own way to God, man's ideas of how we come to God. Man cannot do that. That's false religion. It is God who determines how we approach him, and God must communicate that as well. And he has done in his holy word. So Cain really instituted the first false worship. He knew the truth about God and what God demanded, but he chose to come to him his own way. And elsewhere, when you read scripture, Cain is lumped in with the apostates of the Old Testament. Cain is an example of the natural religious man then. He believes in God, but he also believes in his own works. So that was Cain. But Abel, Abel spoke back then and he still speaks today because he had a very clear message well, in his life. And his message is this, that man can only come to God by faith. Forgiveness, redemption, all of those things only come to us through faith in Jesus Christ. The second thing he communicated was that man can only come in obedience to God. He had to bring the proper offering to him. And we recognize that since Jesus died for our sins, what does he require of us? That we just give our lives to him, we repent from sin, we follow him in obedience. And the final thing that was communicated was that sin will be punished. God will punish sin. The wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. And that was an example of Abel's faith. 
Today we look at another person. The other person is Enoch. And so Enoch's faith will be looked at today. And Enoch is an interesting, interesting character. Now remember, the author's first example in Hebrews 11 of faith took us to the very beginning. He took us to creation. It was in verse 3. In verse 3, he said, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So chronologically, then, he's taking us back to the beginning of time. He says, By faith, uh, even his Jewish audience understood and believed, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, believed what the Bible said about how everything came about. Then he went on to the very next, next Old Testament example of faith chronologically. He took us to Abel, and Abel is in Genesis 4. So he took us to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 for creation. Then he went to Genesis 4 for Abel. And now we come to Enoch, the next example of faith, again, chronologically. And where is that found? It's in Genesis chapter 5. So we're just going really right through Scripture. Now, we're going to look at this a little bit later, but elsewhere in Scripture, Enoch is mentioned a couple of times, but his name is only mentioned in a genealogy. So in a genealogy in First Chronicles and also in Luke uh, chapter 3. So there's no significance other than to say that he is in this uh, a line of, of Adam. Any further information about Enoch can only be found by what we read about him here in Hebrews 11 and also one little place that we'll look at later in the book of Jude. So not much is said about Enoch. Now, I told you last week not much was said about Abel, but even less is said about uh, Enoch. But what is said about him is significant. So let's look at it today. We're going to read just two verses today to look at what is said by Enoch in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word for us today, Lord, in these just few verses that we'll be looking at. We thank you for the life of Enoch. And we just pray, Lord, as we study this passage and we look at his life in Genesis 5 as well, Lord, that you would just help us to see the rich and wonderful truths that the author of Hebrews wants us to see about the example of faith in this man. We pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would guide us into truth, Lord, and that we would see the things that we need to apply to our own lives, that we might live lives that better glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now before we can really properly understand our Hebrews passage, we really need to go back in history, and we need to read the Genesis account of this character, Enoch. So would you keep your marker in your Bibles in Hebrews 11? We'll come back to that, but would you turn to Genesis chapter 5 with me? We really need to look at this, and we're actually going to look at a little bit of Genesis chapter 4 as a bit of a, a review. Last week, we saw that Cain murdered his brother, Abel. And once he murdered uh, Abel, remember God came to him and said, where is your brother? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? You know, he had an attitude to God. But we're told that God cursed Cain. And it's found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 11 to 14. And it says this in verse 11. So now you are cursed from the earth, 
which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it, still, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Now, we read that little bit last week, and a question came to me after the service regarding where these people came from that wanted to murder Cain. And I thought, I didn't really cover that, did I? I should probably explain something. Well, it actually gets harder than that as you read further. Let me just show you as you go further into verses 16 to 17. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, and Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, one of the most commonly asked questions in the Bible, funny enough, is where did Cain get his wife? And the question asked of me last week was very similar, wasn't it? Well, where is, who's, who's Cain afraid of? Because you had Adam and Eve, you got Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel, so it's just Cain. <laughs> Who the heck is Cain afraid of? It's a good question. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Um, here's, here's the thing. It is assumed by the passage. Here's what's assumed when you read it. That Cain moved to the city of Nod, and in the city of Nod, and amongst the people of Nod, he found a beautiful woman and married a woman of Nod, and that became his wife. Is that what the Bible says? It doesn't say that at all. In fact, what it says is that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, and Cain knew his wife. doesn't say he found a wife there. doesn't say there were other people there. He just went to a place called Nod, and he knew his wife, and knew is a euphemism for sexual intimacy because it's followed by, and she bore a son named Enoch. So it was there in that land of Nod that they uh, had a child, and then he built a place. He built a city, and he called, you know, I'll call this place Enoch, because he's not original, does no names beyond his own son. I'll just call the place Enoch after my son, Enoch. And so there you have uh, the, the beginning there. And, and so you go, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. But what about the whole uh, Cain thing? Where did Cain get this wife? If, if Cain came with that wife, where did, he, where did he get that wife? Well, we just skip ahead to chapter 5. Let me just show you in verses 3 to 4. I know this is kind of not the subject, but it's, it's helpful because what I don't want you to do is as we're studying Enoch, the whole time you're just not paying attention because the whole time you're just asking yourself in your head, where can he get his wife? Where can he get his wife? So I'm going to try to answer that so that we can have your attention. All right, so chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, it says this, Adam lived 130 years. And he begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, we read earlier in chapter 4 that Seth kind of replaces uh, Abel, okay? After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. Now, as you read through this account, each person is mentioned as having sons and daughters, having sons and daughters, having sons and daughters, having sons and daughters, having... It's just all through it. But when we follow the genealogical account, which is here, we're just given the name of the son, because that is what happens in the Jewish account. You follow the, the male name. The daughter's names are really never mentioned. So just we're told here that, well, Adam and Eve had sons and they had daughters. In fact, what they were doing, they were being obedient to the command given by God to be fruitful and multiply. He wanted them to fill the earth. So they were having kids. They were like rabbits. They were having, you know, they were coming out of sons, daughters, you name it. 
and they were having all these kids. So what this means is, I know it's going to sound icky right now, is that Cain married a sister. But listen, throughout the history, okay, the, the, you have to have you have to have some sort of inbreeding at the beginning, no matter what view of history you have, okay? Um, and then it was legal. Then there were no problems of any deformations or mutations of genes happening because it was so early in the human history. It wasn't until later in Leviticus that God says, and now it needs to be forbidden. There are enough people on the planet where you don't need to marry a sister. In fact, I don't want you to do that. Ooh, icky. And, and because what will happen is now you have genetic mutations and things that will take place. And certainly that shouldn't happen today because it's even more possible because those are passed down in the family. And so God was protecting early humanity um, there when it came to Leviticus so that it wouldn't continue. But in the very, very beginning, it was perfectly understandable and safe. So yes, Cain married a sister. I hope she was pretty. Um, so hopefully it clears it up. This is just the beginning of history, folks. But we're listening. We're told this, that Cain went out, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And what's, what follows there in, in chapter 4 are seven generations that are mentioned coming down from Cain. It's very interesting because it contrasts with Genesis 5. Seven generations, it goes all the way down to Lamech and his three sons, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal, Cain. Wonderful names, you guys. Looking for baby names. There you go. And in his genealogy appears two names that also appear in the contrasting genealogy in chapter 5. And I don't want you to get them confused. In fact, you already saw it, didn't you? Cain's son is named Enoch. But this is not the Enoch of chapter 5 and of Enoch that the Hebrews author is talking about. Cain's son, Enoch, is a different Enoch. This is a different genealogy altogether. In fact, it is a godless genealogy. What we're seeing is the, the reflection and contrast between one and the other. This is Cain who murdered his brother, and now we have a, a, a family a trait taking place of godless, hopeless people. Goes down to, to Lamech, who brags about being a murderer. He brags about killing people, and he mocks God's law. This is a godless uh, generation. And so Cain is among them. Cain was a murderer. And we were told in 1 John three twelve, and you might remember this from last week, he asked this question, why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. What, what works were those? It was his self-righteous works. He decided he could get to God on his own works, on his own approval, and through his own means. And so what's happening here is the righteous is being contrasted with the unrighteous, the godly with the ungodly. So chapter 4 ends with the ungodly, um, seven generations of an ungodly seed. You could say it that way. So reading from the, the murder of Abel onward, you kind of begin to lose hope for humanity. But then, then you get to the end of chapter 4, and in verse 25, God provides them something that looks like they might have another chance of redemption. Verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, something very interesting here, and this is really just a side note, 
what Eve says here about, uh, about Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, might be, just might be a reflection of the curse that was pronounced um, in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and the serpent deceived them, God curses the man, God curses the woman, and then he curses the serpent. And remember what he says? He says something about the seed of the woman, doesn't he, there? He says, there will be enmity between uh, you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And it might be that she thought, okay, now that God said that, he's given me another seed. This might be that seed, that seed which will give us a victory. Sadly, when you read on about the genealogy, uh, it's not quite the case. That seed will come much, much later in the person of Jesus Christ. So what follows, though, is a godly genealogy to a sense. Um, because men began to call on the name of the Lord. And what we have in Genesis 5 then are 10 generations mentioned from Seth, again, all the way down to three sons of a man named Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So one ends with three sons of Lamech, the Tubals and the Jubals and the Jabels, and then one ends with the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, okay? Now, as you read through this genealogy, the inevitable result of the curse is highlighted all the way throughout it, and that is death. God said, when you eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And that's what you see over and over again in chapter 5. It's repeated. Look at verse 5. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 11. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Go down to verse 14. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Uh, go up to 17. So all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20, so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. You see what's happening here. Uh, no one uh, survives. Everyone dies. But in this list, in this list of godly men, we do find Enoch. And it's the Enoch that the Hebrews author is talking about, not the Enoch of Cain in chapter 4. It's in verses, uh, verses 18 to 24 that we find six times this Enoch is mentioned. Look at, look at verse 18 with me. Jared lived 162 years. He was a young guy. And he begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. There's the sons and daughters again. And so all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Interesting little section, isn't it? So you see that death is the result of sin, and death affects every single person as you go through this genealogy, and suddenly you get to this Enoch guy, and we're told that he walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. What is happening here? Well, let's go back to our Hebrews passage as we consider what is taking place here. Keep in mind what we've read, and let's look at what the author of Hebrews has to add to see if we can't get a little further clarity. As we read this, going to find three things for you. If you're taking notes and you want to take an outline, you certainly can. I think we see three features in Enoch's life that were pleasing to God. And the first is this. He entered the presence of God. He entered the presence of God. Verse uh, 5 begins by saying, by faith, Enoch was taken away 
so that he did not see death. So in Genesis, it just told us that he was not. But here, oh, and that God took him. But here we're told that he was taken away so that he did not see death. Taken away is this Greek word, metatithemi, uh, and it means to transfer or to transport. So he was transported somewhere so that he did not see death. And if you think about this, if we only had the Genesis account that we read earlier, we might really wonder just exactly what that phrase meant when it said God took him. You know, well, he took him where? I mean, he took him out? Uh, what did he do? Um, well, Hebrews dispels any confusion. We're told he was taken away so that he did not see death. Death did not come to him. Every man died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and then we get to Enoch, and he didn't die. Death did not see him. This is indeed unique, and now you can begin to see why the author chose Enoch as his next example. As that Genesis genealogy reveals, everyone uh, dies, but Enoch didn't. And there's only one other man in history to have ever escaped death, and his name is Elijah. And it's an interesting account because God had communicated to Elijah. Elijah was a major prophet of God, and uh, God had communicated to him that he was going to take him. Somehow he communicated that to him, and he knew about it. And Elijah communicated that truth, that little secret, to his, his um, uh, successor, Elisha. And so Elisha knew about it as well. And so Elisha said, well, when you go, can I, can I get a double portion of your spirit? You know, I want to be, be more holy than even you. I just, I, I'm going to need to be a good prophet. And so when he asked that of Elijah, Elisha said, okay, I'll tell you what, if you see me when God takes me away, then that will come to pass. You'll get a double portion. But if you don't see that, if you're not around to witness it or God doesn't let you see it, then that's not going to... That's not going to happen. And so then we read in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, this is what it takes place. Then it happened as they continued on and talked, that's Elijah and Elisha, that suddenly a chariot of fire peer, appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it, and Elisha knows he's gone. <laughs> he, he went into heaven in a fiery chariot. But when he walks back, he comes across the sons of the prophets. There's 50 of them. And they come out and they say, where'd Elijah go? And he said, well, I don't know if I can tell you. And they said, well, listen, he's disappeared. Has he? Okay, let's, there's 50 of us. We can go search for him because maybe what God did, maybe he just transported him to a top of a mountain. Maybe he put him at the bottom of a valley. So let's go search for him. And Elijah says, yeah, you don't need to bother with that because <laughs> Elijah knows <laughs> the man is gone. But they persist him. They urge him, oh, come on, we can find him. So he finally says, okay, go ahead and send your 50 men. So they, 50 men go out and search for Elijah. Three days they search for him. And they finally come back and said, yeah, we couldn't find him. And Elijah says, yeah, I told you so. <laughs> He's not here. He had been transported away. They found no remnant. They found no body, nothing. The same thing happened to Enoch. The Genesis account tells us that he was not <laughs> For God took him. I love how that says that in Genesis. He just, he just was not. You were there. If you die, you're not, but your body is still here. But he was not. Hebrews tells us he was not found because God had taken him. I mean, one day, Enoch, he, he just went out for a walk, and he never came back. I mean, they must have searched for him because he wasn't found. He couldn't be found, just like Elijah. And we don't know exactly how God took him. We don't have the dramatic, you know, picture of Elijah and the chariot of fire and all that. We're just simply told that, that he was not. 
Now, so why does this account come to us when it does in the middle of this Genesis genealogy? Because although there are some men who begin to call on the name of the Lord, the majority of the population is still very much wicked. By the time Enoch's own son, Methuselah, will die, a flood will wipe out humanity sent by God. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 6, this is what God says about the condition of man. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Yeah. So it seems like a hopeless uh, situation here. However, Enoch's faith demonstrates for us that there is hope. There is hope for mankind. There is a way to God. You see, Abel demonstrated authentic faith, didn't he? He, he came to God in the, the, the right prescribed manner to come to God. You can't come to me a sinner. You have to have your sins covered. And that's authentic faith, not creating our own way to God, trusting in the way that God has communicated to us. That's how we come to him. But that's all Abel ever had the chance to do. You think about that. He died. He was murdered. That was it. But Enoch gives us more. Enoch demonstrates for us that there is a continuancy. There's a continued walk of a believer. And that's really the characteristic of his faith. If you read that, it's his walk, isn't it? We're told he walked with God. In fact, let's look at this. He walked with God. Now, our Hebrews account tells us twice that God had taken Enoch. But it also adds this very important point. Look at the end of verse 5. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, here we see this word testimony again. The author keeps using it. That's really the point of mentioning all these men and women of faith. He wants us to see the the testimony that they had before God. That word was used in verse 2. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. Again, not necessarily a testimony to the world, although that certainly happened, but a testimony before God. It was a proof of their faith. It demonstrated their faith. It was a witness of their faith, a testimony to that. And so we saw also that Abel obtained witness or testimony that he was righteous. We saw that in verse 4. And now we read that Enoch also had a testimony before God. And what was it? That he pleased God. Wouldn't that be a great testimony? Here's my testimony. That person, he, he pleased me. That person, he pleased me. Actually, it's better than this. What the author uses, the word pleased here, is uh, you are a steo, and that is a Greek word that is used from the Septuagint. Remember the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Yeah? You follow me? So in the New Testament, it is Greek, but that same word is the word that is used of the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 5, 22 and 24, when it says Enoch walked with God. It's the word walked. So in Genesis 5, Enoch pleased God or walked with God. Here, who we're told he pleased God or walked with God. That's the idea. To walk with God is to please God. The words are synonymous. Does that make sense? And so when you look at the Genesis account, I'll put the verse up for you. Genesis 5, 22, it said, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. He walked with God. I can't even imagine what that is really like for someone like Enoch, but we should be able to imagine because we too can walk with God. 
You know, there's only one other person said to have walked with God in this sense in the Old Testament. That was Noah. And um, we're going to look at him next week. We can't talk about him uh, today. But during the wicked generations, men were not walking with God. Only Enoch, only Noah are singled out. In addition, Enoch walked with God, did you notice, for 300 years? 300 years. Now, yes, people lived longer back then in the pre-flood era. The world would have been surrounded by uh, water, so it would have kind of kept the, the, the climate the same the whole time. The UV rays and all those things wouldn't have the same effect. People lived a long time. But I think about walking with God 300 years. I think I'm coming up on 20 years of actually walking with God. I think about it. I've had to sit and think about it. When did I really feel like I began to walk with God? I would say somewhere maybe 20. I wasn't always consistent, but 20, 20 years. Did you notice that for Enoch, it wasn't until Enoch was 65 years old and he had a son? He had Methuselah, didn't he? We're told that then he began to walk with God. Look at that, Genesis 5, 22. After he begot Methuselah. You know, I think about it. I think I began to walk with God shortly after the birth of my son. That's when I really began to take my faith more seriously. I began to look at that little baby and go, what am I going to teach him? What will he believe about me to be true? What will I show him I value in this world? At the end of the day, what will he be able to say, this is what my dad was about? Sports? Work? What is it? I wanted him to know that I love the Lord. I began to walk with God. That was it. So what does it mean then to walk with God? Because some of you are thinking, like, you walk with God? What's he look like? Right? No. Well, listen, we could really spend the entirety of the message on that subject of what it means to walk with God and don't have that kind of time today. But perhaps we can get a little insight from even Enoch's name. Enoch's name means dedicated, dedicated. After the birth of his son, Enoch became more dedicated to God, and he began to walk with him. To walk with God is to fellowship with God. That is to walk with God. It is, speaks of a, a faithful living. And I want to look at a few New Testament verses. I'm just going to pull a few things out for you that will hopefully help you understand this. We looked at this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, when we introduced faith. Faith is, we're told, we walk by faith, not by sight. And there that word is walk again. How do we walk? How do we, we fellowship with him? We fellowship him simply beginning with faith, simply faithful living. And faithful living doesn't take place outside of a right relationship with God. You must have a right relationship with God. And all kinds of ideas are attributed to faithful living when you read the scriptures. All kinds of things are, are, are said to be walking. We're told to walk this way. We're told to walk in the newness of life. We're told to walk in the spirit. We're told to walk in love, to walk in truth. We're told to, to, to walk as children of light, for we are. And we're even told to walk wisely or circumspectly. There are many ways in which we are told to walk, but they're all aspects of faithful living. But where does it begin? Where does fellowship with God really begin? I want to give you just a few bullet points here. It requires, first and foremost, reconciliation. Fellowship with God begins with reconciliation. It is impossible for us to walk with God while separated from him. 
We are separated from him as, as humanity. We're separated from God because of our sin. And so if you want to walk with God, you must be reconciled to God. You, you cannot walk with God and not be reconciled. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, that's the purpose of salvation, to reconcile man to God. We're enemies of God. We're separated from God. The whole purpose of salvation is reconciliation. We've been separated from him. We're born enemies of God. And Amos 3, 3 says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? And no, you cannot. You cannot have intimate fellowship with someone that you are not agreed on. You cannot walk in the same direction with someone you're not agreed on. You, you, are, you are not reconciled to that person. James told me this week about a neighbor who, who was trying to get to God. <laughs> and, and at just spur of the moment, I, 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 you know, he said something like, I keep trying to kick it there. And, and I told him, I said, tell him religion will get him there. Um, and then I end up using it in the wedding. Um, I said, religion will never get you to God. Religion doesn't bring about reconciliation to God. Why? Because religion says, you do all these things and God will see that he is pleased. God is not pleased in any of our works because the Bible tells us all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag. We have no good in us, nor our works. Our works don't get us to God. What got Enoch to God? His faith. It's faith. It begins with faith. His faith reconciled him to God. To be restored to God, we must trust him in faith that what he says about our condition is true. What he said to Abel is true. You want a relationship with me, you can't come unless you bring a sin offering that covers your sin because you're a sinner. You must have a blood offering. The blood offering was provided for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to be reconciled to God. Walking with God also requires a second thing, that our sins be forgiven. Yes, we're reconciled to God, but remember, it's our sins that separate us from God. So something must be done about our sin. We must have them cleansed from our record. You and I have a book in heaven, and these books are going to be opened up the great white throne judgment, and we're told that everyone in the planet and who has ever existed in all of history will all be resurrected and judged according to their work, works written in the book. That is one big book. Everything, everything I've ever done, wicked, every thought I've ever had, wicked thought against God, I mean, I would take up volumes say, to say nothing of the, uh, Mark. I mean, his would be, just kidding, just joking. It's, it's listen, we're judged according to, to our, our, our record. Our record must be a sponge. That must be wiped clean. We must have our sins cleansed. First John chapter 1 says this in verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, if we say, oh, I fellowship with God, that's one thing. But talk is cheap. If you really fellowship with God, that means you no longer walk in darkness because your sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us there will be some who will be saying, hey, hey, Lord, 
What, what about me? You know, let, let us come. And he'll say, I didn't know you. I, I, I don't know you. That's because our sins are only forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your sins are not wiped clean by any other means, by any other method. And when you say, I have fellowship with God, but you still walk in darkness, we're told that you're a liar. If we walk in light as he is in light, we do have fellowship because our sins are truly forgiven. You cannot walk with God and walk in darkness. Another aspect of walking with God is, is a surrendered will. We, we New Testament believers walk with Christ when we surrender. We call it uh, to his lordship in our lives. We call him Lord. We, we know we, we say, he's, he's my Lord. He, he's, he's my master. That means I have surrendered my will to him. I bow the knee to him. And 2 John chapter 1, verse 6 says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. This is also known as repentance. You heard that word. Coming to, to God in faith, believing those things that he says of us to be true, asking for forgiveness of sins, all that, that must happen, but we also must turn away from sin. Repentance. And that means I have to surrender my will to him. We cannot continue in sin and also say, I, I still want some control. I still want to control my life. I still want to make decisions. I still want to do these things. Um, we, we yield to his um, guidance in those things, his spirit that works in and through us. I've had too many conversations with people in the past that just say, I'm just unwilling to relinquish control. I just want to ask, like, have you done that great of a job with your own life? It's a surrendered will. One other thing continuing faith. Walking with God is a walk in faith. It's a walk by faith. It's a continuing uh, faith. You, you don't at one point in history say a prayer, uh, come to church, uh, say that you've done whatever you think you need to do to come to faith, and then walk away from that and think that you're going to be okay. It is a continuing in faith. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, it says, and you who once were alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That, that tells us everything. We were separated from God. We were enemies, but he reconciled us to him. How? Through death of Christ. And to do that, then he's presented us holy, blameless, if, you see this big if in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Look at those words I underlined, continue, grounded, steadfast, not moved away. Your, your roots are set, baby. That's what that's saying. I trust in this, and there's nothing that's going to come that's going to move me from it. It's, again, like the parables of the sowers, where there's so many seeds that we receive with joy, but when something difficult came along, you know, Jesus sounded good until this came along, and then I went and found something better, at least from their perspective. It's continuing in the faith. 1 John 5.13 says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of 
God. I love what that says. Here's how you continue in faith. Here's how you do it. You must stay in the word because we're told that the word was written so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know it, not question it, that you know it, and that you may continue to believe in it. Listen, you, you start to move away from the church. You move away from reading. You do begin to doubt. Like, I don't know if I'm really saved. I don't know if I really even believe this anymore. Well, yes. But we're told here, but I've written these things to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life, but also continue in it. Continue to believe it. That was Enoch's life. He had a walk with God. He had, he had reconciled him, been reconciled to God and had a deep and wonderful fellowship, fellowship with him for 300 years. And I wonder why God waited 300 years to take him. Probably just saw where the life was going to go and said, I'll just take you now. I'll have a little mercy on you. But he walked with God. And there's one obvious and primary feature of Enoch's life. And this third one is his faith. He had faith in God. Verse 6, look at verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Impossible. Uh, Do not toss. We've looked at this word several times. We're told that it's impossible for those who have heard the truth, who believe the truth, who knew the truth, uh, if they leave the truth, to come back and be renewed uh, to repentance. We're told that it's impossible for God to lie. We were told that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And here we're told it's absolutely impossible to please God apart from faith. Nothing we do pleases him if it's not done in faith. Remember that word uh, pleased? You are a steo. That's synonymous with walking with God, right? You, you cannot have fellowship with God apart from faith. Without faith, it's impossible to walk with him, is what he's saying. It's impossible to please him. And two comments our faith on faith are made here. The first is, you must believe that he is. This means that faith is grounded upon an object. That he is. It's upon God, a specific object. The God of the Bible. Not a God, not any God, not your God. God of the Bible. And one must believe that God exists. And I just, I, you hear people talk about, um, and I think Judy was watching a movie, and I walked in, and I heard this comment, you know, it's like, oh, life just has a way of directing you back onto your path. And I just kind of chuckled and said, really? How does life do that? Whose life? What life? Where does this life come from? How does that life direct you? Or they might give it a more direct object and call it the universe. No, the universe has a way of, of doing these things. Like, really? How do, what, what part of the universe? All the universe? All the galaxies in the universe? Or one part of a galaxy? It doesn't make any sense. It's almost as if people want to put a purpose or design to things. They want a purpose, they want a design, but they want it without God. And listen, it only comes with God. That's it. They can't tolerate living in a purposeless world, and so they come up with a universe or life. On the other hand, you have people who are quite happy to embrace living in a world without any purpose whatsoever. People like Richard Dawkins. Listen to this quote from him. The universe we observe has precisely the properties, properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So yeah, none of it means anything. I embrace that. Here's an interesting idea. Consider this. The very idea of God, the very idea of God, lends substance to the fact that God exists. How would we even be able to conceive of such a thing 
as a God, if there were not a God, to give us that idea. I'll prove it to you right now. I want all of you to quietly right now think of something that doesn't exist. Go ahead. Something that does not exist. Conjure it up. You, You can't do it. People try to do it in movies all the time. I love it with the aliens. Like, let's come up with an alien no one's ever seen. And it comes out like, well, it does have an arm. Oh, it does have a tail. Like, oh, yeah, but it has this. Yeah, but so do, so do I. Well, but yeah, but its eyes are, uh, its eyes? Oh, but they're down here, but it has eyes. Like, we can't even, okay, my, my alien is a gelatinous blob. You might like jello? I mean, we can't come up with things on our own. We have to use things we already know exist. So for you to even have the idea of a God, that must mean that God must have given us the concept of God to begin with. We're absolutely unable to come up with something that doesn't exist. Can't be done. That's the first step. First step to believe that he is. Second step is you must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Here the author offers us the benefit of belief in God. It's the benefit of it. Trust in God leads to something. It leads to reward. It leads to ultimate pleasure. It leads to fulfillment. You know, people pursue pleasure. They want pleasure. And Psalm 1611 tells us well, ultimately where that pleasure is going to be. You will show me the path of your life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's the pleasure. It's at God's right hand. Humans want pleasure, but they settle for far less than they could absolutely have. I've read this quote by C.S. Lewis before, I'm sure, but it's one of my favorites. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. So like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, yeah, we're far too easily pleased. You know, look ahead at chapter 11, verse 26, just a sneak peek. Chapter 11, verse 26 is speaking about Moses, and we're told this, that he is was esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. You know, he was born a prince. He could have all the treasures of Egypt, and he said, I don't care about that. He saw something further off, a greater reward. Faith believes that he is, but also believes that God rewards those who diligently seek him. Enoch, like Moses, diligently served God because, as Hebrews tells us, you must believe that he is a rewarder of those who do so. And you know what? Enoch faithfully served God. I want to take you to this passage, and I'll put it on the screen for you in Jude. Jude gives us a very interesting sermon, the only sermon by uh, Enoch, and it's a very repetitive sermon. Look at this. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. What kind of men? They were the apostate and evil men of his generation. He prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ungodly, 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 and ungodly. He says, Christ is coming and he is going to judge. Who? (laughs) Did you catch it? The ungodly and their ways. Talk about a repetitious sermon, but to the point. Apparently, Enoch preached to his wicked wicked generation. We're found. He warned of the impending judgment upon upon, uh, the people. 
who were ungodly. And you know what? Judgment did come. It came in a flood. But did you notice he's talking about something else? He says, uh, no, it's the Lord who's going to come with what? Ten thousands of his saints. He's speaking about a different judgment. He's speaking in a far future, and I want to take you to it. It's Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 14. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who is this? This is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. When does Jesus come back with ten thousands of his saints to judge evil? He comes at the end of time. He comes at the battle of Armageddon, and he will judge, well, according to Enoch's sermon, the ungodly. But also to reward the righteous, to reward those who diligently serve him. And Enoch, he received his reward. One day he went for a walk with God and they walked right into the gates of heaven. So this is a picture of a reward that also comes to all of us. And Revelation 22, and we'll end with this, verse 12, we're told this, Jesus says these words, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. What does God want from you here? Listen, he just wants faithful living, faithful living, walking with God. Won't it be great for you to look back and go, I walked with God this many years. I sat across from a beautiful young woman. I say young woman. (laughs) She was an older woman, but she was young in spirit at the wedding yesterday. And um, she was asking me my testimony and talking to all of us and just loved the Lord. She oozed the Lord. And she loved everything about the wedding service because, you, you know, we, we preached the Lord. And, and she just um, was so beautiful. And I asked her, I said, so are you married or have you ever been married? You know, I, she's an older woman. And, and she looked at me. She goes, I've been married to Jesus Christ for 51 years. You know what she said? I've walked with God for 51 years. Incredible. Won't it be great to look back and go, I've been walking with God for 51 years. I've been walking with God for 60 years. I've been walking with God for 300 years. No, I don't want 300 years. Take me, Lord, before that. You know what? He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Listen, you have a greater reward waiting for you in heaven. And ultimately, we'll get to walk with him in person one day. Praise God for that. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the example of Enoch. What a What a man to look at today who walked with you, faithfully lived in fellowship, intimate fellowship with you for 300 years. Lord, I want to be like Enoch. I want to be a a faithful man who walks with you, who talks with you. Lord, who, who, uh, Lord, um, doesn't, doesn't pretend he has a relationship with you, but knows he has one because you're so very present. God, I just pray that you would bless your people this week, that they would feel your presence, that they would know you are there with them. They would seek to foster that wonderful, intimate fellowship that we get to enjoy with you, looking forward to that reward, ultimately, which is eternal life with you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.